There are birders, and then there's Peter Kastner. He's a retired U.S. diplomat who holds the world record for seeing the most bird species. His goal is to see 10,000, that's 10,000 different species of bird. At last count, he has spotted 9,856 birds. From Afghanistan to Colombia, from Zaire to, yes, Aotearoa, New Zealand. With every tick off the list comes a story, the altitude sickness in Bolivia. Trekking through the forest in Papua New Guinea with a guide wearing a human skull on a necklace. And each bird is more than a conquest. It's a reminder of the magnificence and wonder of birds with whom we share this planet. Peter Kastner is just back from Borneo and he joins me now. Hi. Jesse, thank you very much for having me. Nice to talk to you. You too. Let's start with your most recent trip, the Meritus Mountains. What birds were you after and which were you able to see? Well, amazingly, there are three really, really rare birds in that are found in South Kalimantan. One of them is called a black-browed babbler that had been discovered about 150 years ago and had not been seen since until a couple of years ago when someone discovered them. A actually bird trapper, an Indonesian bird trapper, found one in some karst uh, limestone karst habitat in far southeastern Kalimantan. And we went there, and it turns out the birds are quite common in this very, very specialized habitat. Uh-huh. In addition, in the Maratas Mountains, which are probably maybe 100 kilometers away, uh, some bird watchers went up there about five or six years ago and discovered two completely new species, a new species of blue flycatcher Gosh. and a blue species of white eye or silver eyes, you call them down in uh, in New Zealand. Fantastic. And, and what counts as a spot? I guess you just have to be satisfied to your own satisfaction that you've seen the bird you're trying to see. You can't always get up close. Um, I, I presume you don't make yourself take a, an actual photograph of the bird. I don't. I don't require a photograph, but I much prefer it. Um, with the advent of digital cameras, getting photographs is much easier than it used to be. And I don't have a fancy uh, lens and a fancy uh, camera. A lot of birders do these days. I have a very simple outfit. But it's nice for me just to get what we call record shots, just an image that shows that I did see the bird. And it's also nice to have a camera in case I see something very rare so that I can prove to uh, to doubters that I, in fact, saw it. Mm-hmm. Did your obsession with the bird world start early? Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, it, it started, unbeknownst to me, when I was two years old. My oldest brother, Hank, had what, it was, what we call a spark bird, and he was visiting our grandparents in Mexico City and saw a vermilion flycatcher, a brilliant red and black small bird, and he was amazed at this bird, and he went to a bookstore and found a bird book that had a picture of this same bird on the cover. So he bought it, and that was his spark bird. He was 10 at the time, huh. and I was 2. So by the time I was about 4 and became more aware of my surroundings, I started birding very uh, seriously. Charles Darwin said birds appear to be the most aesthetic of all animals, excepting, of course, man. Is it the beauty that appeals to you about this, or is it something else? 
everything. I, mm -hmm. I, I studied ornithology in uh, at university and was intending to become an ornithologist until I realized that I would do much better seeing birds by being a diplomat and living overseas rather than studying them professionally. Um, so I, I, I love their biology. I love the fact that they can fly. I mean, you know, if you've, if you've ever been up on a ridge top or something and seen the birds come soaring by, it's just spectacular. The colors are beautiful. I love the, the, the thrill of the chase, you know, having to hike in, uh, in March in Northwestern Vietnam, I hiked 11 kilometers up a steep mountain to find a very rare wren babbler that had been seen only by a couple of people ever. So you get the, 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 the thrill of the chase, you get the, the, uh, uh, the difficulty, the challenge of, of, of having to hike long distances to, to put up with uh, insects and horrible conditions, hot weather, rain, leeches. Um, I love that side of it. I love sharing what I know about it with other people. I love um, just about everything. I mean, birds are just remarkable, remarkable creatures. Fantastic. And you, I'm, not sure you, about, I'm not sure about the exception of man. I, I think I yeah. put birds up. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Um, yeah, Darwin was, Darwin was right about a lot of things, but these days we're realizing he was wrong about some of them too. <laughs> um, that, that choice of career, the diplomat, was that part partly an excuse to see the world and see the world's birds? Yeah, about uh, 99.9% partly. <laughs> oh, Peter seemed very distracted in that meeting and kept looking out the window. She <laughs> <laughs> did that once. I was meeting with the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Visa Services. He had an office overlooking the Potomac River on about the 12th floor of one of the State Department annex buildings in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And an eagle flew right by his window. <laughs> of course, I... I I uh, disrupted the meeting, and we all watched the eagle fly by. <laughs> Is there a competitive aspect to this for you? Absolutely, that's another angle that that I love. I come from a very competitive family. I uh, my father is in the Lacrosse Hall of Fame. My older brother Hank, my mentor that started me birding, is in the Lacrosse Hall of Fame. Um, so, sort of very very high level competitive sports were something that was very important in our family and you know the idea of being first is is something that i i i can't deny it gives me pleasure it, it's something it's fun to be first um i don't i don't see it so much that i am any better than anybody but i've had opportunities and i've had blessings in my life that have allowed me to to see more birds and i also have a a fire in my gut to to go out and find birds that very very few people have. I understand that fire was burning even the morning of your wedding. Yes, that was that was the only time that my wife put her foot down. <laughs> my brother Hank, there's a, there's a bird in in Michigan called Kirtland's warbler, and my wife is from Michigan. That's where we got married. And the morning of our marriage, my brother proposed getting up at about five a.m. and driving. <laughs> four and a half hours up to northern Michigan to get the Kirtland's warbler. And then we'd be back by lunchtime in you know, plenty of time for the wedding ceremony. And uh, my dear wife was extremely supportive of me. Uh, she said, no, that, was, that wasn't going to happen. So, <laughs> if, if she was from so, Michigan, had, had she seen the Kirtland warbler? 
Yes, in fact, she did her bachelorette party in the Kirtland's Warbler habitat. Oh, come on. Went, That's just rubbing your face in it. She did. I even had, She even took a photograph <laughs> of her and her friends looking to get a, a giant uh, uh, statue of a Kirtland's Warbler in Mayo, Michigan. And in addition, <laughs> after that, we moved to Bogota, Colombia, and we got a cat. And we named the cat Kirtland, so it would be a constant reminder that she had seen the Kirtland's Warbler and I hadn't. <laughs> I just Googled it. It's a beautiful little bird. It actually reminds me a bit of a New Zealand bird, maybe a New Zealand uh, robin or something. It is a very nice bird. Yeah. And at the time, it was very, very rare. They've, uh, much like New Zealand, uh, the Kirtland's Warbler Conservation Program has been a resounding success. And their numbers have come up from around 300 at one point up to, uh, I think, around 1,500 birds these days. Oh, great. I'm talking to Peter Kastner. Uh He's a retired U.S. diplomat who holds the world record for seeing the most bird species. And did you come to New Zealand to check off? If you, we've got plenty down here. I did. I, I back, in, back in the day, let's see, in uh, 19... I started working for the State Department in 1980. 1981 in the in uh, in February or so, I moved to uh, India. I did 18 months in India, and then I moved to Papua New Guinea. And I spent a total of three years in Papua New Guinea. Two of them in Port Moresby, and then one year in Honiara on uh, temporary duty. We had a, a problem with an American tuna boat, and I was sent over to help uh, negotiate the release of it. It took 15 months. And while I was in Honiara, I uh, made a trip down to New Zealand in uh, late March of 1985. And the idea back then, I was not, I didn't believe when I was in university and when I was younger that I could ever compete with the people that had lots of time and lots of money mm. that had large world lists. Mm. So I was trying to become the first person to see all the bird families. Right. So my main purpose to come to New Zealand was see the bird families, such as the kiwi and the uh, the wattled, um, the uh, saddlebill and the kokaka. And how many of ours of our native birds have you managed to tick off? I've done very very well. Um, there is one kiwi, the great spotted kiwi, that I've. <laughs> it's kind of a nemesis for me. I've, <laughs> I've heard the bird, but I've never seen it and. Under there actually aren't any rules for for, for listing for for making your list. Some yeah. people count they hear, some people don't. Some people count birds that other people hear. So if a guide says, "Oh, that's a such and such calling," then some people will put that on their list. Yeah. I count birds that I hear that I can identify by their sound, and I do have the the great spotted kiwi on my list as a herd bird. But my true nemesis in New Zealand is the Malherbes parakeet, what we used to call the orange-fronted parakeet. Yes. Huh. And I, I looked for it in 1985. I looked for it both around Arthur's Pass and in Lake Sumner Forest Park in both of those areas where there are small relic populations. And then in 2016, I went back and I went up to the, the Haldon Valley, which is uh, east, I guess it's on the eastern slope from uh, Arthur's Pass. 
and spent uh, a couple of days hiking up in there. Gosh. And again, I've uh, struck out. Now, in the in the meantime, the bird has become quite easy to get. And, and anybody who wants to see it can see it by going to Blue Mine Island, which is up near Picton. And uh, it, apparently the bird is quite quite common on that island. They've been introduced there as a predator-free island. Yeah, you, you don't stop yourself ticking off birds at, say, seen, uh, not scenic reserves, um, uh, like predator-proof, um, predator-fenced reserves, that sort of thing. Like, that would be probably your best chance of seeing a, uh, a kōkako, for example. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I saw the kōkako in uh, 1985 in up in, in the North Island in native habitat. But uh, Did you? since seeing it. Yeah, I've since seen it. Uh, I think it was on Kapiti Island. I got them, oh, but um, my again, everybody has their own rules. And basically, the rule is that if it's if it's introduced, then then some people count introduced birds. Some people don't. I count introduced birds if they're being reintroduced into their native habitat. Yeah. In other words, if it was a a place where they had been previously and then were extirpated for one reason or another, and then the area is is sanitized or, or becomes uh, appropriate for them to come back, then, yeah. then I count. Yeah, fair enough, too. Did the, the, the blue duck, the field, give you a bit of trouble, too? Yes, that was terrible. In, in 1985, I looked everywhere for that little booger. <laughs> and I remember I got, like, when I, before I went, I had made contact uh, there's a, an ornithological journal in New Zealand. I believe it's called Notornis. Um, I should have looked it up before this. But anyway, my, my rem- mem- memory from 30 years ago is it's called Notornis. And they had the New Zealand Ornithological Society had five or six regional representatives. So I got the book and I just wrote letters to these people and said, look, I'm coming to New Zealand. Can you give me uh, assistance on finding various birds? And the people all were just super, super friendly. Um, I ended up a third of the nights that I was in New Zealand. I got hospitality from New Zealanders that just invited me to stay with them. And they would all give me advice on where to where to find the blue duck. And I remember the very last place was was down, I think it was down near Arthur's Pass. It was in a remote valley. And they said that I had to walk up three or four kilometers up into this this very, very remote area that was was completely untouched. And I hiked up there and couldn't find a stupid bird. Anyway, I was a little little frustrated because I had several in Papua New Guinea and in Honiara. I had lots of, of Kiwi friends. And several of them had already seen the blue duck. So every time <laughs> we would get together, every time we would get together, we would talk about just how beautiful the blue duck was, <laughs> how wonderful bird it is, and <laughs> it was, it was just terrible. But anyway, when I went back in in nineteen, that's the problem, by the way, Peter, of being so successful is that everyone just wants to tease you. Absolutely, and 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 I deserved it richly. I deserved it richly. <laughs> so I I went back as soon as I uh, retired from the foreign service in. Uh, I believe it was late August of 2016. My first trip was to bring my wife to uh, the Southern Hemisphere, to Australia and New Zealand. Right. And one of the, the big targets of my trip back to New Zealand was to get the uh, blue duck. And in fact, I found it very, very easily in the town of Tarangi, 
Um, there's a, a river that, that yeah. flows to the eastern side of the town called the Waipakihi. And there's blue duck right in town. And there's a little a little uh, uh, path along the river, and then the bird was just sitting, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred meters from somebody's house. So it turned out to be quite simple when I saw it in 2016. And I did get a nice photo. Fantastic. Um, we talked about how diplomacy was a bit of an excuse to go birding, but did you find the other thing happened that you went birding and, and actually found a use for your diplomatic skills? I, I loved being a representative of the United States. It was an, an absolute honor. And being a diplomat gives one entree and uh, a level of access uh, to, to foreign governments and to society that, that one just normally could never even dream of. And it was, it was a, a fantastic career. Um, the, one of the reasons that I did it uh, was a, uh, some very sage advice from a, a birding friend of mine who said that if I became an ornithologist, I would lose my hobby. And if I did something completely different, that my life would be so much more enriched and mm. so much more rewarding. And I think that, that that was very, very good advice because I did have a very successful career as a yeah. diplomat. I, uh, I, I really loved it. I, I had some, some fantastic uh, experiences over the years. And it, as, again, it, representing my country can, can be a challenge sometimes in anybody's country. I was in, uh, in the Solomon Islands trying to defend uh, a, an American tuna fishing boat that was picking up tons of tuna out of Solomon Island waters. And according to American law, it was legal. According to everybody else's law, it was not legal. And I was sent to uh, into the Solomon Islands to explain why it was elite, why it was legal, what mm. those American fishermen were doing, um, which was not a very uh, popular position to take. No, but um, you know, I did it, and and I managed to uh, to do it successfully. We got the 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 ship back and most importantly um we began negotiations in 1985 on a south pacific regional uh tuna fisheries treaty that ended up being very successful and and pumped millions and millions of dollars of development assistance into the fisheries industries into the economies of the southwest pacific nations whose tuna were being uh, harvested by the uh, by the the uh, the tuna boats. So in the end, it was it, it turned out to be a very a good story, and it was one that I was very very proud to be a part of. What will you do when you find that ten thousandth bird? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I I I've got a plan. The the big problem with the birds is right now there are eleven thousand and one species of birds on the IOC world checklist. As of today, I've seen 9,910 of them, I've seen just over 90%. To get to 10,000, I need to see 190 more birds. But before I get to 10,000, it's very likely that there will be two taxonomic updates <laughs> to that list. Yeah. One of, one of them in January and another one in August. And those 
taxonomic updates could could reduce the number of birds on the list or they could increase the number of birds on the list. <laughs> and I'll have no idea until it actually happens. And so I'm 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 shooting for a moving target. Well that sounds like a great excuse for you to exercise some diplomacy and start lobbying. Well, I actually have. I've, I've <laughs> made contact with the people that are that are in charge of that process, and not so much to to lobby them to change their outcome, but to try to find out as much as I can in advance what the likely outcome will be, so that I'm not surprised huh. and not blindsided at the time. After all these years of birding, you've learned so much about them. Um, can I ask, through your travels throughout the world, what have you learned about people? Boy, um, one of the interesting things is that my main job early in my career was as a visa interviewing officer. Mm. I was a consul, and the, the reason I was a consular officer rather than, a, say, a political officer or an economic officer was that as a functionally specialist diplomat, I was not constrained geographically. So if I were a political officer, I would tend to spend my life, my career in say, South Asia or the Pacific or South America and would become an expert in that region. Yeah. But as a consular officer, I was expected to become an expert in consular affairs. And as because of that, I was able to travel and live all over the world, which was the whole idea that I was in the foreign service. So it worked out perfectly. But um, the main thing that happens when you interview hundreds and hundreds of people a day is that you learn you learn about people's character very, very quickly. You yeah. have, on average, about three minutes to determine if somebody is being truthful or not. And I've, I have a pretty good radar for, for knowing whether somebody or something is truthful or not. And it is... Oddly enough, it's become very, very useful in these days because there is so much that is going around the world on the Internet that is false. And I have, again, very good radar for picking up things that are just that are just not true. And I it, it, it serves me very, very well these days. Fantastic. Well, I could spend hours with you, Peter. Um it's been a real pleasure, and there are lots of keen birders in New Zealand, as you know, who will have been hanging on every word, but our time is up. Thank you for uh, making some time in your schedule for us today. Good luck getting to 10,000, and we will await those updates, uh, which are coming up next year, uh, nervously, and hope to uh, hear from you how you're getting on. Jesse, it's my pleasure. I'm sorry that I've got a, a horrible upper chest infection these days but uh, i look forward to uh, coming back and giving you an update once i get to ten it's been a real pleasure talking to you yes please talk to you then all right bye-bye